thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to worship you. We ask you to be with those that aren't here, that went to the Historical Society's event, and that you'll be with them and give them opportunity to share you at, at some point. And we just ask you to anoint this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to be in verse 4, but I think I'm going to read the first three verses just to get us back to where we were we were at in the context. Woe well unto Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add you year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will address Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against you around about, and will lay siege against you with a mount, and I will raise forts against you. And you shall be brought down, and shall speak out of the ground, and your speech shall be low out of the dust, and your voice shall be as the one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of your strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of your terrible ones shall be a shaft, and it passes away, yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. You shall be visited of the Lord of hosts with, with thunder and with earthquake and great noise and with storm and tempest and flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations shall fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munitions and, and that distress her shall be as the dream of a night vision. And it shall even be as when a hungry man dreams and behold he eats but he awakes and his soul is empty when a thirsty man dreams and behold he drinks but he wakes and behold he is faint and his soul has appetite so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against mount zion all right just a reminder in case you forgot ariel is another name for jerusalem <laughs> So he's making this, this uh, statement of, uh, against Jeru of judgment against Jerusalem. We're going to take it up in uh, verse 4. As God is, we kind of left right in the middle of, of all of the uh, uh, judgments on Israel. Verse 4 says, And you shall be brought down and shall speak out of the ground, and your speech shall be low out of the dust, and your voice shall be as one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground, and your speech shall be a whisper out of the dust. So here he's saying that they're going to be brought so far down. We started out with their haughtiness and their pride. Their, they think, you know, we, we talked a lot last week about how Jerusalem and, and Israel has always thought, well, we can't be taken because we have God's city. We're God's people in God's city with his temple here. So God will never take Jerusalem down. And this was even in even before the captivity of Babylon and then in Jesus' day after the, they, they had that same attitude, well, we're Jerusalem, we will never be, we'll never be taken out. And eventually it'll probably be true of the third wave of Israel right now, our current day, that they'll be looking and saying, we're, we're, we're God's people, we've got Jerusalem, we've got God's temple, we're, we, we can't be taken out. Uh, they just, Israel has had this great pride that, they're special. And they are special. God chose them. Uh, kind of the same attitude that a lot of Christians get. Well, we're just so special. Nothing bad can happen to us because we're God's people. And God says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. 
You know, we have just as easy a chance of being judged and probably even more because God has a higher standard for us. He expects us to be righteous and when we're not, he'll let judgment fall quicker on us than he would the world. And here he's talking to Israel saying, you're going to be brought down and you shall speak out of the ground. I have the feeling here he's kind of talking a little bit about death. You're going to die and you're going to, your speech is going to be that, that type. Or you're going to wish that you were dead at least. <laughs> and, uh, and it says, your speech shall be low out of the dust. And this is very interesting that he keeps going, that you're going to be humbled. And he speaks out of the dust. And, you know, your voice shall be one like, as, like one that has a familiar spirit. And this is a very interesting thing because God is saying, you're going to be like somebody who's speaking from the dead. And, you know, kind of a, when I think about this, I, I meet so many people in my, in my daily activities that seem to be speaking from death. You know, many times when we meet people that are non-Christians, aren't, aren't saved, you know, you just listen to what they say and nothing, there's no, there's no life in their voice, there's no life in their tone, and even if there's any, any liveliness in them, they're, they're, what they say has no life. And, you know, he's talking about being down, brought down that low. You're so far away from me that you don't even have life to speak. And this is the wonderful thing. When you meet Christians, sometimes Christians just stand out because life comes out of them. You know, they're not even talking about God necessarily, but they've got life. And they're not in this position of being dead. And then he ends up with your speech shall whisper out of the dust. And this word for whisper literally is to mimic the birds cheeping, cheeping or as a, as, a, as of a ghost's sounds, the moanings of a ghost. Okay, he says, your speech shall be as the moaning. Moaning of the ghost or, or the cheeping of the birds, you know, no, no value, no, no, no content to it. And he's telling Israel, I'm going to bring you low. And this is pretty low. And they're getting this judgment because they have rejected God and there is no life in them. You know, we think sometimes when, as Christians, that, you know, all the life and spiritual momentum came at Pentecost when God's spirit came down upon, Christ, you know, upon the Christians and the church and the, and the Gentiles that made up the church. But, you know, we go through the scriptures and the Old Testament saints had God's spirit and they spoke with that life and they had the same thing that we have. They had God working in them. Now, they speak of it being on them. Uh, and I've said several times, I'm not sure that there's a great difference between the Hebrews picture of the Spirit on them or the Greek idea of the Spirit in us. Okay, I think it's just a national, national way of looking at it that, says, that uses a different thought process, but I think they're both the same. When you look at somebody like David and, and Daniel or Joseph, I really believe they had the Spirit, as we would say, in them, giving them their strength, giving them their, their, their life. And I just think it's the Hebrew way of looking at it as opposed to a more of a Greek mentality looking at it. Because God is the same. He's ministered the same. And there's, you know, there'll, there'll be people who go, well, Jesus sent the Spirit and it lives in us. Oh, okay, and I, I understand where they're coming from and I understand where they make that 
huge division. And I'm not going to stand hard on this. I just, I'm really getting to the place where I wonder if there's really that much difference between how the Holy Spirit worked with the prophets and the way he works with us. Uh, and Daniel and all the other <laughs> great Old Testament saints. Uh, but you know, life. God gave them life. And you could hear it. You, you read the book of Daniel and you see what Daniel, how Daniel stood. You, know, you can take somebody like a Daniel. You know, supposed to eat the king's food and, and become Babylonian and he stays, he stays Hebrew. He stays following God. And you know, when it comes time to worship, he won't, you know, they won't worship. When it comes time to not pray, he continues to pray. He had God in a way that very similar, if not exactly the same as we had, have him. So we look at this and he says, you're going to whisper, you're going to sound dead. Everything about you is going to become dead. And uh, we see this so often in the world. And the greater and closer we get to God, the more we see the deadness around us, at least I do. I see the deadness around us you know, especially amongst the non-Christians and how dead they are. But I also see how wounded and hurt Christians are that aren't following God. You know, and you're just looking at them saying, you're missing so much. You're missing life. And one of the greatest things I like is when, when Christ came into my life, he gave me life. You know, he gave me joy and peace and, and contentment and gave me life. And now that life is being worked out and grown and, and developed. And then you look around and you're going, wow, I'm so sad for some of these people who say they're Christians and their life just isn't there. I'm not saying they're not saved, they're just, they haven't grown in Christ to show life. And every once in a while you run across somebody, they're just so lively and everything, and, you know, and I'm not gonna say they're 100% right on all their things, but they're alive, they're seeking God. And God is saying to Israel, you're, you're not following me. And we think of Israel, you know, sometimes when we think about Israel, we think about this, you know, great people who follow God, a little stiff-necked. But, you know, when we read about them in the scripture, most of the time they're dead and not following God. And they're worshiping idols. And there's no difference between them and the world. Now, granted, it takes 100 years in between each time, each, each fall, but then you, we look at something like our country of America that started out on Christian principles and followed God. And as we've drifted away from God, how far this country has come down to the point where, okay, God, judgment is necessary on this country to either come back to you or be taken out. And we look at this and say, as a God's people, we need to pray. We need to confess. We need to see revival in our churches so that we can impact our world and our nation. And this is what's been said over and over, and I've been saying it myself. We need our church to get on fire so that we can reach our neighborhoods, so that our neighborhoods can reach our counties, and our counties can reach our states, and our states can reach our country. But it starts in the church. And we've got so many churches that don't even teach God's word don't even believe God's word. They need to get on fire or quit calling themselves Christian churches, one or the other, and see the Christian churches get on fire 
and impact their, their communities. That's where revival will start. That's where revival started in, the, in each of the Old Testaments. It's if we look at the history of revivals all the way through revivals, they start in the churches and come outward as the church members get on fire. And they start sharing what they know about God to other people. And those people get on fire. And the next thing you know, you've got a great big forest fire <laughs> you know, blazing across the country of God. And lives change. And Israel is so far gone at this point of Isaiah's prophecy, they don't even recognize that they don't have life. And he's saying, you're going to be brought so low that you're going to speak from the ground. You're going to speak dead. And you know, this is something that is important for us to understand. And this is one of the things that try hard to get even Christians to understand. Just because we're saved doesn't make us better than everybody else. It just means we're saved. We've got God's grace. Yes, we've been changed. Yes, in, in many ways where we are much better than we were. But we're not better than everybody else because we're saved by grace. And we never earn our salvation no matter how good we can get. We're still not good enough. And this is something that we're looking at. And then uh, Isaiah in verse 5 goes, Moreover, the multitude of your, your strangers or your aliens will be like, like a small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones or the mighty warriors shall be a chaff that passes. <laughs> yea, and it shall be in an instant suddenly or surprisingly. When all of this stuff happens and, and chaff and dust, you know, we, we live in a place where we understand dust gets blown around all the time. Uh, you know, when we live in a place where there's always wind, <laughs> you know, we understand this whole thing, but he says, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen suddenly. Most of the things that we look at, God enters into life suddenly. And we, we read the scriptures sometimes, and I keep bringing this up, to, and I want people to always remember. We read the scriptures, and it sounds like everybody just lived these fantastic lives where God was always intervening and always there. And I use the book of Acts as a great example. You know, you read through Acts, and something's always happening. Every chapter, something's happening. Well, the problem is that something happening took 30 years of time. And we read through Paul's epistles, and he says, yeah, I went to such and such place, and I spent three years there. Okay, it was two chapters in Acts. He, he saved somebody, he got in trouble with the, the leaders, and got kicked out of town. It sounds like, okay, Paul, you spent, you spent a week there. You know, or even a day or two there, and then we read him in the epistle saying, I was there for three years. You know, we read the life of Abraham, and Abraham has this really exciting life. God spoke to him. God did this. God did this. God did this. God did this. It only took 50 years for those three or four chapters that talk about Abraham to be covered. But the most important part in this is that it happens in an instant. It's a surprise. When God steps in, it's almost a surprise. Now, from God's perspective, it's instantaneous. Now, from our perspective, it's not usually instantaneous. It'll be generation by generation. We look at Noah. Noah was told in 120 years, I'm going to send the flood. Well, in God's, God's perspective, that was instantaneous. But, you know, Noah got to preach for 120 years but when the rain started falling, 
it was instantaneous and it surprised everybody. Even though Noah had been telling them, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Uh, by, by the way, Noah, what's rain? We've never seen such a, such a thing. And you're talking about the water coming down from the sky and flooding everything. You know, you know you, you've lost your marbles. You need to be in the lunatic asylum. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it happened. Now, we take and look at what, when Isaiah preaches, there's a time lapse from the time he dies to the time this gets fulfilled. So yes, he's talking about God. Here, here's your warning. You know, maybe a hundred years from now, but you, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, we look at the captivity of Babylon in this instance, you know, been preached at, preached at, preached at, preached at, or prophesied, let's use prophesied, you know, over and over and over by many prophets, and then all of a sudden, in Jeremiah's day, it happens. Okay, but a lot of prophets before Jeremiah that said, uh, Israel, uh, Judah, we're going into captivity here, we're going to lose it. Uh, Jonah preaches to Nineveh and says, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. They repent. And God, instead of 40 days, waits 150 years. And Nineveh is judged. Right? And when it's judged, it happens quickly. When God moved in to the children of Israel in Egypt, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to be coming out. It only took a couple hundred years, but you're, you're coming out. And then when he moved, it was very quick. A lot of people go, well, how long did the 10 plagues last? Pretty quick. Because if you read one place where he started preaching, uh, uh, giving their deliverance, and they left, and a year later, they're in Sinai. All right, so it's less than a year that, that all that happened. Because a lot of people go, well, it, it would spread out way over a you know, long period of time. Well, Moses started leading the people at age, age 80, and he's 40 years in the wilderness. You know, so there's very little time in there for a long period of, of plagues. Because uh, I've always wondered myself, and it was, it was actually my daughter who pointed that out to me, that it couldn't have been very long because he was 80 when he started and, and he was 120 when he died and they wandered in the wilderness for, for 40 years. Because I always wondered, was it a year, two, three, four, five? You know, maybe a year. <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, we look at this and we say, suddenly... When Jesus returns for the rapture, it'll be suddenly. All the signs are there. But it'll be sudden. All of a sudden, millions of people will be gone from this world. Now, the world is not, you know, we kind of wonder what the world will the world be thinking of, and they'll probably say, oh, good riddance, those Christians are gone. They've always been making life a mess for us. You know, they're judging us and criticizing us for everything new. Now they're gone. They're not really going to care where we went. You know, now the chaos of our cars running into things when we disappear and all that stuff might be a, you know, be a problem to them for the first couple of you know, weeks. But once we're gone, it'll be, oh, good riddance. Those Christians are gone. They don't know what they're in for. They don't know what they're in for once that happens. Suddenly, God moves suddenly when he moves. And definitely from his perspective, you know, like I say, Noah had 120 years before God suddenly moved. You know, Israel had a couple hundred years in Egypt before God suddenly moved. Uh, 
We've had 2,000 years before God's going to suddenly move and take all the Christians away. Well, the rapture will be our suddenly, but, but my point is, though, 2,000 years, as far as God's concerned, is no time at all, and then he'll move. And for us, as, from our perspective, it's usually sudden. We've had plenty of warning. We know it's coming. We know that we see the signs that it's coming, but it'll be something that it happens in a surprise suddenly. And he says, this is coming, and it'll be sudden. When it comes, it'll be sudden. And it was sudden. When they were conquered, it was very fast. The Jerusalem fell in, I think it was less than a year. And when you think about where they're at and how they were surrounded and everything and, and the walls that they had, it's pretty amazing that they fell that fast because a lot of times a well-fortified city would be surrounded for as many as five to ten years before it finally starved themselves so bad that they, they uh, surrendered. And Jerusalem fell very quickly by, by human standards. And God's standards say, yeah, you really fell. So, you know, it's, I took my hand off and you fell. And this is just what we look at. When God lifts his hand of protection off, things happen. Whether it's us as Christians being judged because we won't repent, or nations falling because they've walked away from God and haven't repented. Israel has all these opportunities to repent and don't, and doesn't do it. And uh, then it says, suddenly, <laughs> in a surprise, <laughs> you're going to fall. You know, you've been warned, you've been told. But how easy is it to ignore warnings? Now, and I think about this, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time in, in places where hurricanes happen. And, you know, you get so used to them that you stop taking the warnings serious. Uh, you're supposed to get your water supply and do this and you know, board up your windows and all this. And you go through so many where you do this stuff and nothing happens or it's not the storm of the century that they're talking about and you don't prepare and all of a sudden the big one hits. Uh, and you just get used to it. We can get so used to bad things that we don't prepare anymore. Uh, I think about this in California. People get so used to earthquakes that they barely even notice anything that's not big enough to actually shake the stuff off the, off the shelves. Uh, I lived in California, I know. <laughs> I lived in Guam. Most of the time, you, if it wasn't over three or four, you know, three or four, you just like, oh, oh, there was an earthquake yesterday? <laughs> never, never even noticed it. Uh, we get so used to things and we can get so used to that sinful lifestyle and the lifestyle that needs to be judged that we just start ignoring God's warnings. And that's the place we need to be very careful about. A lot of the pastors I've been listening to have been talking about people coming to church and not responding to God and after a while, no longer even hearing the message. Even though they come to church. They're at church every Sunday, but they're not responding. Whether it's salvation or the call to repentance, or to call a better life, whatever it might be, they just get so used to hearing, hearing the words, that eventually they stop hearing the words. You know, their ears hear it, their minds hearing it, but they're not literally hearing it. Hear it. Yeah, they're not hearing it in their heart. It's not making any difference. And it's like I've said, you know, you talk to somebody and they'll go, you know, and I got saved yesterday and it was the first time I heard the gospel. And you know, and especially if you know them, you go, well, I know you've heard the gospel a couple of times, but 
in reality, it was the first time they heard the gospel. The first time it got beyond the ears and the brain and actually hit the heart and the spirit. And we can do the same thing as turning God off, that we get our hard heart and our spirit where we don't listen. And then if we keep rejecting the message and not acting on the message, that's exactly what happens. We can keep hearing and hearing and hearing, and if we don't respond, we get a hard heart. Israel's there. They've got that hard heart. And they're going to get even harder between time Isaiah gets done preaching to Jeremiah when they go into captivity. Their heart is just going to keep getting harder and rejecting God to the point where they're just not hearing him anymore. And uh, that's suddenly. And then it says, uh, verse 6, You shall be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquakes and great noise with storm and tempest and a flame of devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munitions and that distress her shall be as a dream and a night vision. And he's talking about a pretty bad situation. Okay, He's saying, I'm sending natural disasters to you, earthquakes, storms, you know, fires. When I read this kind of list, I think about America right now. Yeah. You know, how many earthquakes have we had? How many tornadoes have we had? How many ma massive hurricanes have we been having lately? Earthquakes where nobody's ever heard of an earthquake before. You know, Tennessee recently had one. You know, New England had one for, you know, and it's like, I heard about that one. I'm going, what? New England had an earthquake? Storms that are pounding us. Fires that are eating up our country. Uh, you know, and we look at this and we go, wow, God, you could have been talking about America and all of this. You know, and in one sense, he is. We've turned away from him and God has sent judgment saying, are you going to pay attention to me? Are you going to listen and respond? Now, we haven't had verse 7 yet, multitudes of nations attacking us. But, you know, we've had terrorist attacks starting. And it won't be long before we see, if we keep rejecting God, more attacks. Now our troops overseas where they don't belong <laughs> are being attacked. But you know, that's the next step for America. Yeah, because it says against her and her munitions, so our military being in somebody else's country is being attacked. Is that? Yes. Yeah, yeah we're, most of our military is where it doesn't need to be. Yeah, and they're being attacked. And they're being attacked. And eventually it'll be an attack in, in our own nation if we keep rejecting God. We keep rejecting God, we're going to have the attacks in our own nation. And we're starting to see those you know, from various you know, terrorist activity, and it's only going to get worse. You know, I kind of see the, you know, the parallels. You know, Israel's drawing away from God, and they're being judged. And I look at it and going, where are we at in all of this? And, and I look at, our, you know, look at our status and going, wow. And, and it says, and the distress shall be as a dream of a night vision or nightmares. <laughs> okay, the idea of nightmares. You know, that when they, everything, is, everything going on, like, I've got to be dreaming, this can't be happening. And I'm hearing those kind of things, you know. How can these things be happening to us in America? It just it can't be happening. Well, if we keep moving away from God, it's going to get worse. And we look at this and say, it happened to Israel. 
It happened to every other nation that followed God and turned away from him. They would start getting these judgments. And God is serious about this. He goes, if you're going to not follow me, judgment follows. God puts his hand of protection on a country when they're following him. And when they're not following him, he brings judgment upon him. And we can look at the book of Judges to see that cycle over and over again. The people fall away from God and he sends tribulation and trials and there's a point where they, they would repent, but you have a place where you either repent or God takes you out as a nation. And history has shown us that that's exactly what happens. You know, he brings that judgment and you either repent and continue on for a little while or you get taken out as a nation. America is at that crossroads very shortly where we're going to be either repent or be taken down as a nation. Not necessarily to non-existence, but be taken out as a powerful nation and be under submission to somebody else. And you know, most people will that'll never happen to America. Well, it's happened, it's happened to every other country in the empire out there. It'll happen to America. America could fall easily. You know, not that I wanted to, but it could fall easily. And we're due the judgment because we are pulling away from God. And we are at the last stage of judgment. Every empire that has fallen in history has fallen when they start accepting all sexual perversions, primarily homosexuality, but all sexual perversions. And we are at that door for judgment to fall on this nation as an empire. And we need repentance, which is why the churches have to get serious. And the problem is many pastors won't say what I just said, that we're in God's judgment and most of what's going on is God's judgment. There are pastors out there saying that, but the average church pastor will not say that because they don't want to be considered a troublemaker. They want to be politically correct. Or as Jeremiah, he was always accused of treason, treason and thrown into, into the dungeon because he kept telling them, God's going to judge you. We're at that point. This nation is at a point where it must repent or be judged. And, you know, there'll be life after that's judged. I mean, we'll still be around as long as God keeps us around, but things will not go really well. Uh, our, a lot of our freedoms will disappear. And we may fall from internal. You know, we look at the what's going on in our government. We may fall from power just because of our government changing the way it wants to run. But isn't it like, I think it was first Samuel was talking about, even when I send you in captivity, I will take care of you. Mm -hmm. God will always give us the grace to go through whatever it is he asks us to go through. Now, he won't give us the grace before the time, but when we go into it, he gives us the grace. In uh, The Hiding Place, Corey goes over a lesson where she's going on a trip with her dad and she's, you know, uh, no, she's talking to her dad about death and saying, I just can't handle death. And he goes, when God's ready, you'll give the grace. And she goes, well, I don't understand. He goes, well, when we go on a trip, when do I give you your ticket for the train? When, I, when it's time to give it to the conductor, God does the same thing for us. He gives us what we need when we need it, as long as we're putting our trust in him. He's not going to say, okay, here, here, have everything you need for, for your entire life. There would be no test in that. There would be no trial in that. God says, are you going to be faithful up until the moment when you need this? 
that's where the real trial, and I keep talking about this, when he tests us, it's, are you going to hold on to what you know? And this is very important. Uh, Chuck Smith had a great statement. He goes, never give up what you learn in the light for the trials and the darkness. You know, don't give up what you know for the, what you don't know. All right, very simple. God, I'm going to hold on to what I know. What, I may only know five things, but I'm going to hold on to them no matter what. And if somebody says I should be doing something else in the darkness, I'm going to hold on to what I know. Because the world's going to tell us we're doing everything wrong. They're already telling us we're doing everything wrong. We hold on to what we know to be true. And the more we hold on to what we're true, then God will give us more truth to hold on to and strengthen us up. You know, because it is, it is interesting out there to say, God, I'm going to hold on to what you, what you have given me. Go out to the world and tell them that you believe in creation, and they'll laugh at you. You know, well, look at all these proofs. Well, none of what they give you is a proof, but you know, they've been bombarded with it enough that they think it is. You know, what do we do when we face a hardship in our life? Do we hold on to all things work together for good and God is sovereign and has a good plan for me? Or do I get all worried and, and bent out of shape going, God, I just don't, you know, God, you, you lost your marvels. Did you go on vacation? Uh, you know, God, I just don't understand any of this. A test. What are you going to do with what you know? And God always is testing, what are you going to do with what you know? He's not going to test us on what we don't know. Okay? Now, he might test us on what we should have known if we had been going to the where we were supposed to go. I don't know about that one, but I kind of think he might. He might test us on what we were supposed to have learned, but he's definitely going to test us on what we think we've learned. And say, do you, do you really even believe what you have learned? Are you going to hold on to what you say you believe, or are you going to surrender that? Israel was surrendering everything. Okay? Uh, and he says, you know, it's going to be like a dream. And then to really make his point, uh, in verse 8, it shall be as when a hungry man dreams and he dreams that he's at a feast. <laughs> he has a great big feast. He's full in his dream and he wakes up and he's hungry. Dream food doesn't take you anywhere. <laughs> or as a thirsty man who dreams that he had plenty of water and he wakes up and he's still thirsty. Okay? And this is what he's saying. Israel, you're going to think that your deliverance has come. You're going to think all these things are good, but you're not going to have it's not going to be real. And we can't live in a dream world, you know, because reality eventually takes over. You know, the world looks at us as Christians and saying, well, you guys are just living in a dream world, you know, this fanciful world. Little do they know that we're living in the real world and they're the one living in the dream world. The world's dream world? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Because they put their trust in everything that is shifting sand and falling down and no, no strength. We are putting our faith and our trust in God. No sure foundation out there. You know, and, you know, I've had people say, well, you're just using God as a crutch. I'm going, I have no problem with that. What's your crutch? Yeah. Well, I don't have a crutch. I'm just depending on myself. I go, well, that's a really weak crutch. Uh, you, you make a lousy crutch. Your alcohol, your drugs make lousy crutches. Your workaholism makes a lousy crutch. Your dependence on family makes a lousy crutch. Your dependence on exercise <laughs> makes a lousy crutch. 
In this it says, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Are we talking about the nation of Israel also? No, Mount Zion is Israel. All the enemies coming against Israel. Because remember, Zion is another name for Jerusalem or Israel as a, as a, as a whole. Yeah. This is the hard thing when you're reading through the Old Testament. You've got to keep track of all the different names for, for Jerusalem and Israel. Well, you know, that's what I was wondering. Is he talking about Israel fighting against itself? No. no. The enemies of Israel fighting against the mount of, mountain of Israel. Uh, because it says, so shall the multitude of all the nations be, comma, that fight against Mount Zion. That comma is very important. He says, your enemies that are fighting against you. Basically, he's saying on here that his soul has appetite. All right? And we have colon there, which means he's given us another example. So shall the enemies be, the ones that are seeking that appetite that fight against Mount Zion. Giving you an English lesson here as we, <laughs> we look at these uh, words. Uh, so he's saying, Colin, let's go with another thought on that. Let's give you another example on this. Your enemies are going to be just like this appetite that is not satisfied in your dream world. All right? And in this case, it's a real. They've woke up from their dream and it's a real enemy attacking them that they cannot get over. They, they would wish. In their nighttime, they might have some, some peaceful nights, which aren't usually the case if you're worried about things. You don't usually have a peaceful night's sleep. And goes, but even if you did, you're going to wake up and you're going to find out that you're not satisfied. And the one thing I have learned over the years is God has so many things that to us in our flesh appear to be contradictions. You know, he is totally righteous, and yet he is totally merciful. You know, and his righteousness demands judgment. <laughs> and yet he wants to give mercy and grace. But he couldn't just give mercy and grace to us. Jesus had to die so that we could have mercy and grace because his righteousness and holiness had to be fulfilled. And yet if we don't keep that whole ball in mind when we're reading the scriptures and we start reading about his judgment, we'll go, God, that's, you're so hard and mean and and nasty, how can you be telling us that you're a God of love? Or we go the other direction and we say, wow, God is just so loving and kind and he forgives everybody. How could he send anybody to hell? Get the whole picture of God. When we start getting the whole picture of God and what he has done to keep people out of hell, then it becomes, oh, yeah, they, they really deserve it. They've rejected everything God did to get them there, so he is, he is perfectly right to send them to hell. And this is why getting to know the scriptures is so important. Because the more we know about the scriptures, the less those apparent contradictions stand out. Because all of a sudden we're going, oh, I'm starting to see the other side of this. And this is why I should, you know, we talk to people who will constantly ask, well, when we get to heaven, will we remember this world, will we remember those people that went to hell? I really do think we will because we will now see things from the completeness of it. We will see that they got what they asked for. We will see that they got what they deserve because of their rejection of God and that he is perfectly just and not that he was angry or, or obnoxious with them or mean with them. He gave them what they wanted 
through their rejection of him. And we'll see it from that point of view and going, okay, God, it does make me a little sad that they're not here, but they got what they deserve. And this is why when the more we get to know God, the more these things make sense. The more we get to know God, the more we start realizing that every time we go through something that seems to be bad, God's got a reason behind it. And if we really understand who he is and what he's done, we go, okay, God, just can't wait. They don't understand this, but I just can't wait to find out what you're going to do from this. And it takes a long time to get there. It really does. It takes a long time. And I'm learning to say when things seem to be bad, God's, got, God's still in control and got a plan. And that will change the way we look at our life. You know, I hear so many people, and you hear, well, you know, I just can't get ahead. Every time I get a little bit ahead, I fall back again. What? Yeah, okay, fine. What's God got in plan for you? Are you honoring God in the first place? You know, are you honoring God or not? And sometimes those fall back are God saying, are you going to still honor me? You know, are you still going to give me your tithe when everything is falling apart and it doesn't look like you can afford to? Are you going to still, you, okay, we, we've, been, we've been working our way up. You're more than a tithe. Okay, now we're going to make things hard on you. We're going to, are you going to keep giving the money that you and I have, have agreed to? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever that percentage might be. And God's saying, okay, here's, here's some rough times. What are you going to do? You, know, you say that you love me. What's going to happen when I kind of pull the rug out from under you for a while? Are you going to still love me? When I treat you like Job. <laughs> yeah, when, when, when you become Job, are you, are you still going to be the one that is going to follow and obey? And this is something that we look at. God, help me stay faithful during those trials. And during the trials, we will come up with the idea that somehow God is not there. And, you know, in one sense, it is true. I tell my students when I'm testing them, don't ask me. You're, you're supposed to give what you know, not what I know. When God puts us in the middle of a test, he steps back and says, are you going to remember what you know and, and hold on to what you know? And he's very quiet. And we feel like we're lost for a, few, for a while, if we do, if, especially if we let go of our truth. If we let go of the truth that, that we know, we really feel lost. And we feel completely out of place. And God, and God will come up and he'll pick us up and he'll give us the hug and say, okay, let, well, let's, let's relearn this stuff and give you this test again. <laughs> yeah, as long as we will let him. Sometimes we get so frustrated we just go off into the wild blue yonder for a while and he, he has to chase us down as the lost lamb and carry us back. It all comes down to, am I going to hold on? Will I hold on to the truth that I know to be true? even when it's dark. Because that's the time when my test is being given and I go, Let me, maybe I gotta go grab something else. Maybe this isn't enough. And that's when we get some false teacher coming along and telling us, you know, well, if you just did this, everything would be great. You know, you're having financial problems? Well, if you just give God $100, he'll give you $1,000 back. And we laugh, but that's being said on TV every day. If you just give God this much money, he'll give you back 10 times more. Yeah. And you're sitting there, wow, I'm really having a hard time, God. You don't seem to be blessing my, 
my tithe, maybe I should be doing this, this. And then we make the mistake of going against what we know. We need to be very careful to hold on to what we know to be true. No matter what, how much it is, we hold on to what we know to be true and reach out and say, God, I'm just you know, holding on. So I tell you, sometimes, sometimes when things would be going bad, I'm holding on to the end of that rope, and that's the, the only the rope I'm holding on to is all things work together for good, and God, you're in charge. God, I don't understand any of this. I'm just going to hold on for all I'm worth for these two truths. And what you do beyond that, God, I don't know, but I'm just going to hold on. And I'm going to hold on for all I'm worth because that's all I've got to hold on to. And I don't want to let go of those. He's taught me those truths. I'm not going to let go of them. <laughs> you know, even if I become Job, <laughs> I'm going to hold on to the truth. It works out for good. Why? Because that's all I've got. I don't have anything else to hold on to. And I don't want to be reaching out for other things that sound good at the moment. Now, I can guarantee you that I probably will. <laughs> You know, most of the time I hold on very tightly to that rope, but I know there's been times in my life where I have not held on to those ropes, those truths, and stepped out. And God probably shaking his head, you know, why? You know, kind of like what we would do to our kids when they fall flat on their face and when they know better. Why did you do that? We're going to love them. We're not, you know, if we care about them, we love them first before we chastise them for letting go. But... That's, I can just picture God kind of shaking his head as he's coming up to give you, you know, pick you up and catch you. Oh, why did you do that? <laughs> you knew better. Uh, and I can picture it even though it's not going to happen. He knew, he knew we were going to fail, so it's not, he's not at that point. But, you know, but I, can, I can understand the parent heart in God just being broken. You failed. <laughs> you, you let go of what you knew. You didn't follow through with what you knew to do. And he'll pick us up and love us and set us up for the next trial. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. Israel is under attack. They're going to fall. And it says the multitude of nations. And Israel has been, Israel has had a hard time all of its history. Okay. Many times they've been between two big empires fighting each other and they end up being the battleground. Oftentimes they were the target of the attacks. And we've talked about this. Why are they the target of attack? Because Satan is trying to destroy them. Before Jesus came, he was trying to destroy them so Jesus wouldn't be born because he had to be born of the seed of Abraham. After Jesus was born, he's tried to wipe them out so that they won't be around at the end days because if they're not around at the end days, God didn't know what he was talking about. And Satan could say, see, God, I, I, knew, I, was, I knew I could stop you. I got rid of Israel. They're not here for the tribulation period. They're not here for the millennial kingdom. That's his whole plan, get rid of Israel. Because if he can get rid of Israel, everything that God talks about is done. And that's why they've been the target of intense demonic attack you know, over and over and over again, trying to wipe them out. And if you think about this, everything that goes on is Satan moving to try to destroy Israel. Once Jesus was born, everything was, was there to try to get rid of Jesus. Moved Herod to kill all the babies that were born in, in, in the country so that he could try to kill Jesus. You know, 
went to Gethsemane, tried to kill him in Gethsemane with the sweating of the blood and the pressure that he went under to try to kill him in Gethsemane so he didn't go to the cross. Had him, in, had him at the cross, got him to die, and tried to hold on to him and couldn't hold on to him past the three days that he was allowed to hold on to him. Now he's back after Israel. Because if he can knock Israel out, he can prove that God was not truthful. And Israel has been under attack over and over and over again. The anti-Semitism is on the rise again all around the world, including America. You know, they're being blamed for everything again. Now, the poor Jews, you get blamed for everything. It's going to culminate in the tribulation period, and then Jesus will step in just before they're wiped out. Then there'll be the millennial kingdom, which is all, again, all about Israel. You know, the rest of the world, too, anybody who hasn't accepted Mark, but mostly Israel. And at the end of that time, Satan gets one more time to try to destroy Israel <laughs> and God's whole kingdom. And then he will no longer exist because he'll be sent into hell, the, the lake of fire for eternity. But it's all about getting rid of Israel. You know, and for us as Christians, it's all about will we hold on to truth? Will we hold on to truth when we go through those tests? Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for what you've given us. Lord, we ask that you bring revival to your churches, that we can see a revival in America and the world, that that's your will, and that we will see a great revival. And if not, Lord, come quickly and bring us all into your kingdom. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord. If there's anybody that listen to this that doesn't know you, that they would, we pray that they will come to you and admit that they're a sinner and ask you to come into their heart and seek a church to grow in. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.